This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, welcome back to Pop Culture Confidential and I'm excited to share another dispatch from the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. Today with some incredible women, filmmakers and actors on creating their characters and films. Later on the show, the fascinating filmmaker Angie Wang, a fellow juror that I met at the fest. We talked about her film, MDMA, partly inspired by her own history of dealing ecstasy in order to pay tuition for college. We also talked about defying the minority stereotype, underrepresented voices in the film industry, and much more. Ahead of their panels, I also got to talk to actor Danielle Deadweiler of the film Till, Carrie Condon from The Banshees of Inishirin, but first... German actress Nina Haas. She plays Kate Blanchett's wife in Tar. Her character Sharon is a concert master and a first chair violin. We talked about her spectacular and nuanced performance as the partner of a genius, how she prepared for the role as concert master, and if she feels that Sharon is complicit in Lydia's behavior. Such a brilliant portrayal of a partner of a genius, and you really made her seen. How did you do that? Oh my god, thank you so much for the compliment. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know by digging out the layers, you know, I guess. Um, and to see, you know, to, to see Sharon as someone who's in her own right a very accomplished musician, an accomplished professional, and with her own kind of power within the orchestra. And uh, But she's also... S- a woman who loves and who is about to lose the partner that she's in love with and uh, is somehow navigating through this whole tar system in her own ways and that was exciting to discover. And what did you learn about the concert master? Well, things that I didn't know. I didn't know what an amazingly important position this is in the orchestra. I knew that they kind of hold the orchestra together, but that they actually, whenever, for example, a conductor would kind of lose the rhythm or whatnot, which obviously happens more than one thinks, (laughs) the whole orchestra turns towards the concertmaster and then you hold the rhythm together. So you're constantly counting, you're thinking for all the other instruments, all the other musicians. In between, you you try to translate between the conductor and all the musicians. You try to you're a, you're a psychiatrist. You try to keep everyone calm and happy and willing to work with the conductor and being in a good mood and you know. So it's a lot to navigate. So it's an amazing. Position. Is it true you worked with something called tempo mapping? That's Kate. That's Kate. Yeah, she did she did that. And how did you prepare? Well, I had a fantastic teacher, and I've worked with her now for the third time, and she has such an amazing way of working with me on the actual pieces that I have to perform in the films. 
um, which is very intuitively, a little bit more like singing. You have to do the technical stuff, which is just practicing. It's not so exciting. <laughs> but, uh, but then you, you, you just actually are without fear. And that, that's, that's, that's her, that's my teacher. Yeah. And do you think Sharon is complicit? Does she know? I think, you know, that's up for the audience to decide. But I definitely always thought of trying to give way to that kind of thinking, you know. Who are the people that are around geniuses or people that hold power in their, in their hands? And uh, do the people around them really want change, even though you might think, of course they do, you know. And maybe they don't, because they had to fight their way through and they know their ways within a kind of system. And, so, and Sharon is definitely part of it. And um, you can ask yourself, when do you, when do you ask the right questions? When do you look the other way? Or when do you push someone into the direction? Right so she has, uh, in her own way, she's a little manipulative as well, you know. <laughs> Thank you so much for this incredible performance. If you're a longtime listener and listen to our deep dive into the Banshees of Inishirin a while back here on Pop Culture Confidential, you probably heard that the character of Siobhan in the film is one of my favorite female characters of the year. A complex woman who had so many reasons to stay on the island out of guilt and duty, but had the bravery to leave. I asked actor Carrie Condon about creating Siobhan and what was most important to her in the character. I suppose showing like um, flickers of her rage and of her depression and of her all those things but like but that she was kind of hiding them she was like a private person but like picking the moments when I would show those um, aspects. One of the most powerful performances of the season is by Danielle Deadweiler in Till as the mother of Emmett Till, a 14-year-old black boy who was abducted, tortured, and lynched in Mississippi in 1955. Mamie Till experienced the most horrible thing to ever happen to a mother and went on to become one of the most important figures in the civil rights movement. I asked Danielle Deadweiler what she learned about strength when working on her performance. <laughs> strength looks like discipline in the form of femininity. Strength looks like grace and poise and silence. I think Thelonious Monk says um, silence is the, the biggest noise or the, the loudest noise or something like that. I'm, I'm getting it wrong, but it's something to that effect, right? And so for her to be so present and to be silent in these spaces and yet making such a raucous with her presence, right? Because people didn't want her to be there um, and she went anyway. Uh, there's this beautiful thing that black resistance does. They do it anyway. And so I learned that kind of strength in, in, in everything that made me deal. There's quite a lot of research. And which was most useful for you? Oh, everything collaboratively was uh, uh, highly, highly useful. Archival imagery, archival footage, um, different academic theses, uh, various texts explore um, Emmett Till and Mamie's life, um, her own memoir that she co-wrote, Death of Innocence. Um, <laughs> There's, I mean, just myriad things that I pulled from, but a lot of the things that were really, really triggering and interesting were the poetry, 
the music, the visual art, people have this deeply, deeply embedded in their psyches. John, you mean. Others have done, yeah. There's a critical website that has been done by people who are from Chicago and various academics and artists. People are um, connected to this work, I mean, connected to this story and, and and they are sharing it, and they are talking about it, and they are connecting it to the, 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 the continuum of what's happening to black people in America. So it's, um, she's touched a lot of people. Finally, I sat down with filmmaker and jury member. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Angie Wang, who was also part of a fascinating panel on underrepresented voices in the film industry. We talked about her personal journey in life, having tackled drug trafficking in her 20s, tech sales in her 30s, and nonprofit work in her 40s, as well as her journey into filmmaking. I started by asking Angie to tell us about her very personal film, MDMA. So Angie, thank you so much for joining me. Tell me how about your movie and how you came to that. It's very personal, I understand. It is quite personal. Um, maybe foolish. Some may, see, may say it is foolish. But um, uh, MDMA is the story of a, a young girl, a young, I would say, psycho- psychologically traumatized and damaged girl from the wrong side of the tracks um, on the East Coast during the 80s who parlays her way into a very fancy university. And I think her demons get a hold of her and she decides that it would be a great idea to kick down the door of organic chemistry lab and mix up her own 3,4-methyldioxymethylamphetamine or MDMA and uh, so she becomes uh, an ecstasy dealer during the 80s. Um, it is largely autobiographical which you know it, it, it took me some decades to come to a point where I could own that piece of myself and um, you know I decided to make the movie not serendipitously, but certainly after um, a pretty winding course in life. You know, um, when I do my Q&As with Claudia, she's always like, we saw what you did in your 20s. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In my 30s, I actually sold software. Uh, I worked in in the tech industry in Silicon Valley. And then in my 40s, I found myself... Which is also a Yeah, it's another form of uh, of peddling uh, drugs. (laughs) Um, in my 40s, I found myself um, in the very enviable situation of not having to sling hash anymore for a living. So I thought, what do I want to do with myself? And um, I think I was watching television and I was just watching this news piece on how fucked up our, our education system is um, and grumbling to myself. And my little voice said, you know, if you're not part of the solution, then, you know, you should keep your mouth shut. And I'm not really a girl who keeps her mouth shut so readily. So I decided, well, I think I'll start a nonprofit and we'll go into these um, at-risk urban neighborhoods and, um, and work with middle school kids. And I, I chose them specifically because I feel like it's a real kind of turning point for them. Like if they're going to veer off the path, it, it often is around that point. It's sort of like the last bastion where they're kind of half a kid and you can kind of get to them maybe a little easier than you could a, a high school kid. So we conducted these process groups where we just gave them a venue to be able to really to air the very real issues that are happening in their lives and to be able to teach them how to give and receive support because I feel like there's such um, 
there's such isolation and shame and we're often taught I know that in my childhood when shit went down in my house my parents would be like Whoosh, we don't tell our business outside this house so I wanted to give these kids an opportunity a fighting chance you know to be able to kind of um, connect with each other to support each other and that can change the paradigm so um, from there you know I would have to go fundraising so I'd put on my fundraising cap and I'd you know, cajole my very well-heeled neighbors into coming out to lunch with me, and I'd start hitting them up for money, and they'd be like, all right, just please, could you just shut the fuck up? Like, I, like, we'll write you the check. I don't want to hear about this poor kid anymore. It's too much. So I realized then that um, as a collective, our empathy was really bleeding out of us, like water draining out of a tub, you know? And um, when I was a kid growing up, I really was reparented by film and television, you know? It allowed me sort of a, a, a magical portal to, to travel when I couldn't travel, to experience um, different cultures. What was your background growing up? Your parents, where were they? So my parents are both, um, you know, they're immigrants who came over from Taiwan during the 60s. Um, when I look at pictures of them, I'm like, wow, they're like so beautiful and fresh-faced and young. Um, but, you know, I think that domestic violence is one of the Asian Americans' like dirty secrets. Like, we don't talk about it, and it's fairly frequent. So there was a lot of that, and um, my mother ultimately, when I was seven, decided to leave my father. She took my brother, who was in three. Um, she disappeared for like five years. So um, it was just me and my dad. And I, those were pretty dark years. Yeah. You know? How did that affect you, do you think, oh, as boy. an adult? You know, I think that for many, many years I bought into this narrative. I think we all we form these narratives about ourselves, right? Um, and mine was that I was a broken, damaged piece of shit girl whose own mother left, you know, whose father would go out drinking rather than come home. And, um, you know, it hasn't been until really recent years that I have been like, fuck that, fuck that story, you know, um, and have really rewritten, recrafted my narrative. You have, and you're I've met your daughter, and she's the most beautiful. <laughs> she's a good girl. So you really are doing something else oh, with that narrative. Thank you. She's um, a good girl. How did you get out of this these years, and and of you know, selling ecstasy, and and you know, to really transform yourself? How big of a process was that? You know, it was a gradual process. You know, it was a gradual process. I'm a lucky girl in that. Um, I would have, I don't know, in AA we call them moments of clarity, where all of a sudden I'd be in the, middle, in, the, in the middle of like, I don't know, like measuring out tabs to sell, and I'd be like, what the fuck are you doing? Um, like, what, you know, like, you want this to be the rest of your life? And um, in New York I started um, dealing with some really unsavory types, like very, um, they were really mean, uh, I'll put it that way. And I, I remember looking around and being like, I'm going to be dead. <laughs> like, I'll be dead or in jail um, in maybe 10 years. And, and I thought, I don't want that. I really don't want that kind of life. And I, you know, I slowed down for long enough to check in with myself to see how I was feeling. And I just felt miserable and empty and broken. And um, I thought, I, I don't want to live like this anymore. You know, I, I want a respectable, quote unquote, life. So um, I ran away to the West Coast and, you know, kind of reinvented myself. I was like, huh, what am I going to do here? I looked around, assessed, and I was like, I'll sell software. 
well, that worked out. <laughs> it did. It did. Um, let's talk about the movie. I just listened to an incredibly interesting panel that you were on with a whole bunch of other women um, in the industry. Um, tell me a little bit about being a woman in this panel was sort of unsung uh, voices that that what was the name of the panel? Uh, underrepresented, underrepresented voices. Underrepresented voices. Right. And everyone was telling the story of, you know, getting to the point of actually being to make their own movie. What was the journey for you there? Well, you know, it was sort of um, when I decided I was going to make a movie, of course, everyone thought I was batshit out of my mind. Like, my friends were like, what? Okay, another one of your harebrained schemes. Like, what are you talking about? And I was like, no, it's happening. I'm going to do it. Because I was raised on film and television. And I think that as artists, our highest calling is to be able to model a way through the dark. Um, so each step of the way, you know, at first I thought, oh, i got to get someone to write this thing for me. And then I thought, ah, I'll just fucking write it. And then I thought, oh, maybe I could get, like, Nikki Cairo to direct this thing. And then I was like, ah, I'll just direct it. So I started to kind of piece together the foundation to build a, you know, to make a film. Um, each step of the way, just sort of jumping over another hurdle. Uh, whether foolish or not, you know. Um, I, I um, raised money, I had the script put together, I got a great producer, Rick Bosner, who had just done, um, who was coming off of Fruitvale, which was also shot in the Bay Area, and then I thought, I need like a really um, legit name to be, because, you know, when you're casting, you know, all these managers are like, who are you, you're a first-time director, you've written all this dirty, you know, like there was some dirty sex scenes or whatever the hell and they were like oh my god they're all balking at that like <laughs> you know is this real storytelling or is this gratuitous and so I stalked Cassie and Elwes you know a pretty a well a very well known um, independent film producer into becoming my EP mm -hmm. and so he's actually quoted in the New York Times as saying like I believe Angie is one of the most persistent human beings I've ever come across because <laughs> I would just be you. like hey Cass hey Cass uh, <laughs> So that gave the project maybe a little more legitimacy than it had. And um, I cast some incredible actors. Uh, and then, you know, I think I said on the panel, it, it, initially when, you're, when, you, when you first embark upon the journey, it's sort of like you're trying to push this freight train up a hill, um, which seems like an impossible feat. But then you start, you know, kind of um, recruiting others and you start pushing together and then soon you're hopping on board and you're like we're on a fucking runaway you know runaway freight train so yeah it's quite a journey and talking about representation i mean this was we're in a year with like everything everywhere all at once and you know the, the needle is moving a bit in terms of yes. you know, how how was it then i mean i can imagine <laughs> yes no that's right in fact when i when i tried to shop the script around um to industry i mean i think they were generally pretty receptive to to the story to to the script you know they're like that's oh, a good story but they always you know they kept saying we want to make it castable which is what does that mean castable means white you know, um, so, you know, I got a lot of like, oh, well, maybe Miley Cyrus could play you. And I was like, over my dead yellow ass. Like, that is not fucking happening. Because it's such a part of the character that she's, you know, of course. an Asian American. She's from that background. It's, you know, it's integral to the story in many ways, right? Plus, I'm like, no white girl's going to be able to make ecstasy. What are you talking about? Uh, <laughs> um, so this was before this big push. In fact... For many, for I think about three years, I sat on the movie because no one would take it. It, it really, because and and I'd I'd ask very pointedly, like, what is it about this movie that you that you're not responding to? And they'd be like, it's a great story, it's really it's well done, you did a great job, but 
this is not really the Asian American story that we're looking to tell. You know, this well, isn't really the Asian, the Asian American experience. experience. I think that, you know, if I had written a movie about like a, a nice Chinese girl from Queens, New York, who wrapped wontons and like hung out with her grandma and did math problems, that, that might have sold. But this was, um, it flew in the face a little bit of, you know, the, that model minority stereotype. So, but I think the universe had a plan because it came out, it released on the heels of Crazy Rich Asians. So we got a ton of press, we got, you know, I got written up in the New York Times and stuff like that, uh, you know, because we kind of rode on their coattails, because it was the right time. So I remember my PR guy would always say, movies have to ripen, and sometimes it takes a while. So it took, you know, a number of years for my movie to ripen, but it's out there in the ethos now. That's great. Do you do you feel that things are different now, or is it just, I mean, not just for it, but for women, for every underrepresented voice out there? I think it is changing. I think, um, I think we've had a growth spurt, and I think we need to sort of integrate that and assimilate that, because sometimes it feels almost, it feels inorganic, um, some of the storytelling that I, that I see. And, and I also see, sometimes in especially large productions, I see, you know, a lot of people of color, but I just feel like they're just sort of slammed in. They're like, ah, oh, fuck, no, like, we need a black need dude someone. here, yeah, we need yeah. like an Asian girl, like, okay. And they don't, they're not really fully flushed characters. You know, they're not flawed. They're very... Well, they don't have any backstory at all. They don't. Yeah. They're just <laughs> I mean, there, yeah. and they're of color, and they're decorative, and they're like, okay, we, you know, check that off the list. Um, but, so I think that, we, you know, we still have a ways to go, but, it, you know, I think it's fine. I think, you know, we're a work in progress. And um, I think it's good that it is being recognized that there are other voices. There is another perspective. You know, there are fresh new stories to be told from um, different different uh, vantage points. Yeah, because we're in a time where I mean, there's so much nervousness in the industry. No one is going to the movies, and I mean, all these things that one hopes that those aren't the films the smaller films are the ones that will go first <laughs> in yeah. terms of budget and things but if you're an aspiring you know if you have a story like you did what did what what should you do today to get it out oh there? the first thing is you have to really love it you have to really love it and feed it and nurture it because if you don't love it you're not going to go through the fucking process it's a painful process um it is ultimately a very rewarding one but I think that you have to really believe in yourself. You have to really love it. And then find the people who also love it. You know, um, I think your passion can be very infectious. Um, and I think that um, people, especially in, in the industry, if you find the right people, they can really respond to that. Um, and they can, it's like raising a child. You know, a child needs that a lot of... That much work and that much love and that yes. much disappointment. Yes, it is. Sometimes you want to beat the living shit out of the kid. But, uh, but ultimately, you love it so much that um, you, find, you find a tribe to help raise that child. And I think that's kind of what it takes. I think at the end of the day, it is all about finding a tribe. You really have to tribe and the passion yes and so say thank you so much thank for you the time. it's been such a pleasure to meet you and it's be been on this a great journey. treat and, yeah. a great treat we'll be in touch yeah thank you sure. so much thank you thank you so much to angie wang nina haas carrie condon and danielle deadweiler and thank you so much for listening pop culture confidential is a part of the evergreen podcast network find us wherever you get your podcasts see you next time I'm Anne-Marie Kelly, 
Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. 